Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Winfrey, and what you're about to listen to is a re-airing of an old episode of a podcast I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. This particular episode, original air date August 29th, 2013, features a discussion of one of the better television shows of all time, certainly one of the most compelling and intriguing performances of all time in the lead role, that being centered around the show The Sopranos and the lead role of Coast being James Gandolfini in the role of Tony Soprano. At the time this originally aired, we were counting down to the conclusion of Breaking Bad, one of the other greatest television series of all time. And I figured it was appropriate to count down some of the best, most influential, and noteworthy villainous portrayals in television history as Walter White was reaching his particular conclusion. Joining me on this episode is Pat Mullen, an enthusiast of the show, a friend of mine, and he's been on many, many podcasts with me over the years on a variety of topics. This episode is presented here in conjunction with the release of the Sopranos prequel movie, The Many Saints of Newark, which will be featuring a on an upcoming episode of Damn You Hollywood, if you're listening to this in the somewhat contemporaneous time that uh, this episode is re-aired. Before we get into the show proper, there are a few bits of news I would like to discuss very briefly. Not news. Uh, sponsors. Sponsorships. Yeah, these people are paying us, so I should remember that. Uh, first up is Grammarly, longtime supporter of the podcast here. For you listeners of the W2M network, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes, while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M Network. Again, that is getgrammarly.com slash W2M Network to download Grammarly for free. It is a tremendously helpful bit of software. I would seriously recommend you go give it a try. The style improvements are real nice. The contextual errors save your bacon more than anything else. Our other sponsor for this episode is Amazon Music. Uh, there's, they're a great music service if you're into streaming music, and who isn't? Amazon has a exhaustive library of some 70 million songs. And for those of you listening here, you can click on the link below or go to getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network and get a free 30-day trial. If you like it, you can keep it. If not, you can go pound sand. Uh, that's just kind of how that goes, but it's a really good service. I say that as a user, not as someone who is paid to say that. Uh, it's great. It's 30 days for free. You lose nothing. You gain a bunch of songs. See if you like the service. See if you don't. Just if you click on the link or go to getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network, please fill out the little form that lets them know we are the ones that sent you. That helps us. And since you're getting a free product for 30 days, help us out a little bit. We're, trying, we're still trying to grow the show here, people. <laughs> all right, that's all that I have for this. So with no further ado, let me throw this to my past self back in 2013 for a discussion about the HBO series The Sopranos.
When the devil is too busy and that's a bit too much. They call on me by name, you see, for my special touch. To the gentleman, I'm misfortune. To the ladies, I'm surprised. But call me by any name, anyway, it's all the same. I'm the fly in your suit, I'm the pebble in your shoe, I'm the bee beneath your bed, I'm the bump on every head, I'm the pill on which you slip, I'm the pin in every head, I'm the thorn in your side, makes you wiggle and ride. This is to me. I do it all because I'm evil. And I do it all for free. Your tears are all the pay I'll ever need. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. And we do only need to be paid in tears. So anybody out there who... Wants to hire me professionally, you bring me the tears of small children, I will do stuff for you. Let's just, you know, I'll do evil things. That's why I do this show. Who am I? Why am I possibly threatening people? I am Robert Winfrey, and this is Everyone Loves a Bad. Part two of what's going to wind up being like a six or seven part countdown to the end of Breaking Bad. One of my favorite television shows on the air all time however you want to qualify it. So we're looking at evil protagonists, good guys who make bad choices, famous TV villains, whole nine yards. This week, one of the better shows of all time as well, one of the better acting performances of television history, probably. I mean, I'm not as familiar with all, you know, across all genres, but I'd put James Gandolfini up there among the best ever. And we're talking about The Sopranos, HBO's pseudo-groundbreaking, very successful television series that debuted after the network had found some success with Oz doing darker, you know, profanity-laden stuff that HBO has now become known for, but back then was still kind of a gamble. Oz was successful in that it didn't get canceled right away, so they greenlit The Sopranos, history follows, and most of it's good. Ending debatable, rest of it pretty good. I'm not here alone. I try not to be, even though my highest rate, my highest listened episode on Hannibal Lecter was just me. Still got the most listens out of like anything on this on the Radulich and Broadcasting Network. So I'm happy, and everybody else on here, you're still playing catch up. But I have a guest. He's been here before numerous times. We like having him here. Always happy to have him back. It's his birthday, ladies and gentlemen. So if you're listening live, wish him a happy birthday. It's Pat Mullen. Pat, welcome back. Thank you, Robert. Glad to be here for one of my favorite shows of all time, and only appropriate is I'm currently New Jersey-based. Ah, oh, Jersey. Why isn't that place a toxic wasteland yet? I throw the blame for that one about Jersey not being turned into a toxic wasteland solely based on the success of The Sopranos, and we'll, we'll get to elaborate a little bit on that tonight. That's true. Jersey was known for The Sopranos before it was known for that collection of spunk trumpets that parade around on MTV. Uh, Al, before we get into The Sopranos, I do want your thoughts on something really quick. It was announced today, since we talk about bad guys here, that Marvel Studios and everyone associated with that has cast James Spader to do what I assume will be mostly voice work for the upcoming Avengers Age of Ultron. This makes me personally both happy and sad. Happy because I'm a fan of James Spader. I loved his work as Alan Shore, one of the better anti-heroes I personally found. And 
just in the technical sense, he's an anti-hero because he's not exactly altruistic. Sad because my thought was, my line of thinking was, if you're not going to have Hank Pym create Ultron, then Tony Stark should create an avatar for Jarvis. It would then go crazy, and that's where you get Ultron from, since they're having Tony Stark do it. And then Paul Bettany could be on and get more work. And I'm a huge fan of Paul Bettany as well. So, briefly, before we get into The Sopranos, any thoughts on James Spader doing voice work for Ultron? Yeah, I'm a big James Spader fan. I mean, like, I, I grew up on John Hughes movies, and of course, he's memorable as a teenage jerk. He evolved into a pretty good older jerk in movies like my, one of my personal favorites, Wolf, with Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer. He played a great antagonist there, too. Uh, I, I liked him on Boston Legal. I thought he was the highlight of the show. He's a, he's a talented actor. Second. I just think it's... it's the second highlight of Boston Legal. Denny Crane was the man. Okay, I'll, 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 we'll have to agree to disagree on that one, even though I did love Fair William enough. Shatner as Denny Crane, and I love William Shatner, period. But it's going to be interesting because, you know, we know James Spader can deliver in seemingly any villain-type role, but because it's Ultron, you know, you, ha you have to question what exactly he's going to be doing, if anything. You know, are they going to actually have his physical presence? Is it going to be just voice? How is this going to play out? So, uh, you know, I'm optimistic in that they got a very good lead actor to play the lead villain. I'm kind of wary as to how it's going to be done at the moment. And I'm kind of wary as, as a whole on Avengers 2 so far. But, you know, let, let's see how things play out further as time develops before 20. All right. Well, personally, I'm more optimistic about Avengers 2 than Man of Steel 2 because, hey, I think Vern Troyer would make a better Batman than Ben Affleck. I've seen Ben Affleck in the Superman suit. I'm interested to see him in the Batman. That's my rational response. Is, you know, I'm, I can look at it rationally. My initial response was, couldn't we just dig up the corpse of Sir Lawrence Olivier because that has more talent than Ben Affleck in front of him? I didn't give the guy a break. He's, he's been pretty decent lately. I, I, I'm, there's Paycheck Ben Affleck movies, such as Paycheck. There's good Ben Affleck movies. There's Hollywood Land. There's The Town. And I agree. I think he's found his niche more as a director than in, in, in front of the camera talent, but Maybe that's developed, and apparently he's taking this very seriously, so we'll see how that plays out. I'm, uh, I suppose, cautiously pest probably the best way to phrase my mindset right now. All right, enough about comic book movies. We've got realism, and not Chris Nolan gritty realism with Batman. We've got Tony Soprano, who will shoot you in the face at the drop of a hat if he's not having a panic attack. So explain to me and to everyone listening how you got into the Sopranos, uh, You know, just kind of your background as far as that goes. I personally had not seen any of it during its original run. I tracked down a bunch of episodes in preparation for this, and then due to time constraints, had to sub had to supplement my viewing knowledge with written knowledge and other people's opinion, because I didn't ha quite have time to get through all of it, courtesy of the website I used to stream it. That just kind of sucked this week. So if you'll give us some of your background and then on that whole show in general, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, I, I, most people who listen to our other podcast that we star in every week, the 411 Ground and Pound radio show, know I'm a pretty big boxing fan and have been for a long time, and you know, as a result, in the 1980s and on, you couldn't be a boxing fan and follow the sport without HBO. Had to have a subscription to HBO in order to watch the majority of the big fights at the time. And, you know, during fights during 1999, they really started heavily promoting a show they were coming out with called The Sopranos. Eventually, they kind of delved more into what it was going to be about. A suburb, you know, a dad living in the suburbs in Jersey who takes care of his family, hardworking guy. And then you realize he's a mob boss, and this is more about his dual life as, you know, kind of, suburban regular dad and how he deals with his adolescent kids and his, you know, primped housewife. And then on the other side, how he works in the business of ruthless killers and thieves and extortionists and every seemingly evil thing you could think of doing 
in the organized crime world. Being a kid from Brooklyn, growing up, watching movies regularly like Goodfellas, The Godfather, uh, A Bronx Tale, seemingly anything involving organized crime to one extent, because you're from New York City, which has kind of been, arguably with Chicago, the U.S. haven of organized crime. You kind of get into these things pretty easy, and I, I tuned in for The Sopranos premiere, and I got hooked from the first episode through even the last. Yeah, the last, the end of the series... Through some consternation, apparently there are whole websites devoted to figuring out what actually happened. There are. Which is kind of crazy to me. I mean, that's like, you're delving into Star Wars-level obsession there, people. That's not entirely healthy. Now, the main character here, for those who are not aware, Tony Soprano, high-ranking capo in the... He's based out of New Jersey. A high-ranking capo or captain in the Mafia... Over the course of the show, he winds up basically kind of taking over the New Jersey moth, basically, and he works with some of the guys from New York, and he has to deal with corralling some family members, some um, people who just got out of jail. And it, that whole show kind of rests on James Gandolfini, and don't get me wrong, everyone else is pretty much universally good. But if he could not have pulled off Tony Soprano, that whole show would not have gone pretty much anywhere. I mean... If he's not able to emote, if he's not able to make you believe this guy who, in the first episode, ruthlessly beats a man who owes him money, breaks one of his legs with the bone sticking out, and then rather blithely discusses it with his therapist and breaks down into tears because a bunch of ducks left his swimming. I mean, you can't go from... Those are about the two extremes, and he does them both believable. And it's a real shame that he passed as early as he did, because even some of his movies, I mean, if you've seen, uh, he did, he never had a big role in any movies, but he did, had smaller roles in, uh, I want to say Crimson Tide, and I know he was the main antagonist in uh, Robert Redford movie, The Last Castle, which is actually pretty good if you haven't seen it. So your feelings on that character, just kind of in general, and James Gandolfini, the way he handled that? I mean, you know, it, it had never been done before, where you have this model boss character and really get to internalize with him and that was that was the beauty of the therapy sessions with getting him involved with the character of Dr. Jennifer Melfi uh, and played by Lorraine, Bro Lorraine Bracco who's a veteran of these types of movies having been featured in Goodfellas as the role of the main character and the role of the wife of the main character Henry Hill uh, but th that was one of the smarter plays is that you know when you're going to have this guy who is at one point like you pointed out in the first episode doing a number on some poor SOB who decided it was a good idea to owe a mob boss money, and although he's not a boss at the time, he's a very high-ranking associate in the family, to owe him money, and then all of a sudden he cries because ducks leave his pond. You're kind of left trying to interpret these things without the therapy sessions, but when they really delve into his psyche, it opens you up to his feelings as both a father and as, you know, the, the criminal that he is. And it's such an interesting duality that you have to balance. And it takes a great performer to be able to really get into a difficult character like Tony Soprano. And I think James Gandolfini wound up doing it better than anybody could have. And like you pointed out, he's never, he never really had a big feature role in any type of movie prior to this. You know, he had bit parts in, in movies like The Mexican and uh, Get Shorty and True Romance, which all, all of which he shined in. But he never had that significant of a role. So to cast him would have been a risk to an outsider. But I could see during readings and auditions that when this guy was reading and doing what he had to do to get this, you knew that this was magic with him working. Because he's got that 
face that has just such an ability to read anything on it. And he, he's, like you pointed out, he, the way he emotes, the way he can change those expressions and really mastered body language because he comes from a theater background, that really truly helped him better than I think a, a, you know, a screen actor would have been able to do on any level. And to see that you know, happen week in and week out and the character develops more, my God, it was some of the, the best acting you'll ever see. Yeah, his performance as Tony Soprano ranks... I said at the beginning, one of the best, if not the best, acting jobs in television history. I mean, there's only a handful of other performances I would put up there. Ironically enough, a bunch of them that we're going to get to in the show. I mean, I'd put up uh, Michael Chiklis as Vic Mackey, Brian Cranston as Walter White, Michael C. Hall as Dexter, and probably uh, Katie Segal as uh, Gemma Tellermorrow. And, I mean, that's... And he set the bar before... I mean, if you look at those characters, they came, you know, a lot later, and he set the bar, and he kind of owned what it was to be a great television actor for pretty much the entire run of the show. But he's not alone. There is a pretty strong supporting cast around him. Uh, since I don't mind dovetailing or, you know, connecting threads a little bit, we talked a tad about E.B. Falco in our last in the last podcast about Oz, because she's on that too, as a security guard, as a corrections officer for the first couple of seasons before she moves on full-time to be Carmela Soprano with bad 80s hair, oh, that that kind of killed me the first couple of seasons. The hair styles that she would wear just gotta do it. Made my it just made my mind kind of explode just just a little bit. So let's talk a tad about his loving wife, whom he has a very odd relationship with. Yeah, you know, Carmela, the way she dresses, the hair, it's it's very Jersey because Jersey for a long time was still stuck in the 80s. God bless him, and in many ways still is. But uh, you know. The thing with Carmella is she's torn, and that rift draws further and further with each season where she and Tony were high school sweethearts, and there's a great line she delivers when talking about their first date when Tony came to pick her up, and Tony brought gifts to her parents, and he brought her dad, Hugh, a, a power drill, knowing that immediately that, okay, this is not your normal guy who's a high school kid who can afford to bring, you know, a brand-new Black & Decker Craftsman whatever drill to my father. But she still goes with him and still acquiesces to him, and, She's well aware of his career in the mob and what it entails and that this is how he's been making his living and how she gets to live very lavish. But one of her closest confidants is their Catholic priest of their parish, Father Rincentola, and she constantly tries to justify his life and her life by extension, by doing things for the church and baking and donating money and acting as though she's above it all, when in reality she's another person who has a conscience but that conscience is not strong enough for her to break away and realize that her life as a whole is because of the blood of other people, sometimes innocent, sometimes not, but it's a life founded on doing wrong in the name of money and personal gain. And you see Carmela try and constantly try to break away from this with situations where at one point she was ready to have an extramarital affair with a uh, contractor named Victor Musto and eventually stopped it and she tried to rationalize that Victor Musto didn't do it because he's an honest man and wouldn't do that when in reality she can't face the fact that he didn't do it because Tony would have his legs broken, his head chopped off and the rest of his body floating somewhere in the Hudson River and even has to be explained this by you know another mob wife, the wife of Silvio Gabriella and it goes further when she separates from Tony and tries to divorce him but she still wants alimony and a hefty you know stipend 
where, again, does she think this money is coming from? So in a lot of ways, it's almost to say that it's easier to understand Tony's point because this was a life he was born into with his father being a mob boss. Carmella chose this life, and after several attempts at trying to exit, just comes to terms with it and stays with it. Yeah, I mean, her, you know, the duality of her wants, you know, one minute she's telling the Catholic priest, oh, we have to save Tony's soul, the next she's enjoying a stupidly expensive dinner at a, at a you know, very exclusive restaurant, and, uh, you know, just you see what you want to see type of stuff at times, I guess. But speaking of, throughout the entirety of that show, you know, there's the Tony Soprano plays the role of the protagonist. There's maybe... But there isn't really a classic good guy. I mean, you have a couple of FBI agents who you meet along the way who are investigating either the Sopranos and their family or they're trying to get them through the families in New York. And a couple of them are Italian, so they trade Italian slurs whenever they see each other, and it's very amusing. But when you talk about characters who you know maybe have the strength of character to break away from that particular lifestyle, I'm going to go to... I want to talk a bit about Andrea uh, DiMatteo's Andrea. Forgive me if I'm wrong. Adriana. Adriana, thank you. I knew it was something like that. She is the girlfriend, I believe I don't think they ever get married, of Michael Imperioli's character, Christopher Moltisanti, who I want to get into in a second here. But Adriana tries to get away. She starts informing for the FBI. She agrees. She's ready to get out. She does the, objectively speaking, she does the right thing. Provides information on these horrible people. And her downfall is she tries to get Christopher to go with her, and he turns her in. And then I think it's Silvio that winds up taking her out and executing her for treachery. But it's an, So I, I want to talk about her a little bit, because she is constantly kind of looking for avenues to get out of organized crime, to get... Uh, Christopher away from, she encourages him to do screenwriting, a bunch of things like that, to try and legitimize him and get away from you know the horrors and the reality of everyone trying to kill you and the fed and the feds are always trying to arrest. Yeah, Adriana, you know she she starts off the show kind of as little more than Christopher's you know girlfriend, just to give Christopher's character a little bit of depth. But they were smart enough to realize that. It, that Dre DiMatteo is a pretty talented actress and could be worked in more, and even even while being used as a plot device for Christopher, could have a decent character in her own right, which wound up happening. Uh, she starts off kind of as almost advising Christopher when Christopher's a very low-ranking associate of Tony's gang uh, in certain situations. One of them not even a made uh, man. Ben, no, the not first even couple made of seasons point. trying to get made. Yeah, re- really just a very low-level street associate. He would be called a soldier at this point. Uh, and in situations like uh, when Meadow and a friend of hers were trying to score X for a party, they go to Christopher. And Christopher has no idea what to do at first because he doesn't want to give it to Tony's daughter of all people. And uh, no, they didn't Adriana want it for a party. Of, they wanted it to help them study for their SATs. That's right. They they wanted yeah they wanted speed. Keep and, talking. Uh, so, I might drop off uh, Adrian- for a second here, just as a warning. If I cut off for a second or two, it's my fault. I'll call back in, but. If I if you okay. don't hear from me for a second or two, just kind of keep going. I'll be right back. Not a problem. But, uh, you know, Adriana kind of advises Christopher, you know, if you don't give it to them, they're just going to go to Newark and to Jefferson Avenue, which is a pretty rough area. I've been down that way. And buy it from people who will sell them rat poison with them not knowing any better. Uh, you go from that scenario to where she gets involved with a, a local rock band who she thinks has the potential to really break out and score a hit and can kind of lead to her managing them. She She owns a club that, yes, initially is founded by mob money, a crazy horse, and 
tries to use that to get into kind of knowing how to manage places so she can eventually have a place of her own under her money that Christopher and her can eventually break away from this life. And, you know, these events and attempts are all kind of thwarted, sometimes by her own mistakes, sometimes by Christopher just putting his foot down and and becoming more loyal to his mob family. And she just and his drug habit, which we'll get into. But she stays she stays so loyal to him because she's genuinely in love with him. And as a result, when Christopher starts going into harder drug use, eventually culminating with using heroin, she stays with him and constantly is either just willing to accept him shooting up all the time and doing it with him on occasion, or you know, to the point where. She begs him to get help, and it goes both ways. And then finally it all culminated when he accidentally killed her dog, Cosette, by getting into a heroin-induced high and sitting on the poor thing and breaking its neck and suffocating it all at once. And her final attempt is when caught by the FBI in a situation where a drug dealer named Manouche, who frequents her club, winds up stabbing and killing you know, somebody who he got into a conflict with over drug money. And she helps them get rid of the body, which the FBI had her club under surveillance, saw the whole thing. And if she didn't agree to turn evidence on the Soprano family, they were going to lock her up. So she eventually convinces Christopher, this is our chance. We can go into witness protection. We can restart everything. And Christopher, who's wanted nothing more than to be a respected mob, you know, made man his whole life, as much as he loves Adriana to an extent, can't turn his back on the family and instead reports to Silvio and Tony everything that transpired and that Adriana needs to go. Yeah, and that and her death there is a pretty powerful sequence. I mean, it's one of the better ones in television history. I mean, I think Jeremy Thomas did a top eight deaths in television history article uh, several months ago and ranked that fairly highly. I mean, and when you consider the amount of people that die in that particular show, I mean, if you go to the Wikipedia page and go, like, episode by episode, at the end of each uh, plot synopsis, they have deceased, and then a list. And it's, uh, every episode, it seems like every episode, somebody died. And it just, and hers, yeah, it, it meant something, because, especially as she started to realize what was actually happening, because originally she goes with him just to see Christopher, but, uh, poor, poor Adriana, she tried so hard. And Silvio... Oh, man, his Godfather impressions cracked me up because he always does the one from Godfather 3, and that movie sucks so much. You'd think that the mob guys would not like it. But you'd whenever they're the feeling mob guys down. wouldn't like any mob movie. You'd think, but you know, just whenever they're feeling down, they ask him to do a Robert De Niro impersonation, and he always goes to the, just when I think they're out, they pull me back in. Of course, the sequence that he does for Big Pussy in the second sequence. Rob, did you cut out there? No, I'm here. It seems like Rob cut out, so Block Talk's been having some issues, so I'm going to step in. Uh, he was talking about, you know, mob impressions. But, yeah, I, I've always thought that, you know, mob, actual mobsters would be more offended than anything else by people's take on them and, these, and you know, mob-related movies and television shows. Because at the end of it, they're portraying these guys as, let's be real, no-nonsense criminals who are willing to kill, lie, cheat, steal, rather than work an honest day in their lives. And I, I kind of wouldn't be happy about that if that was a portrayal of me. I'm sure there's moments they can laugh at because uh, there are situations drawn from real-life situations and an art-imitating life sort of way that it can happen, but I would probably be a little more offended, and I would probably have Martin Scorsese's name, among many others, probably somewhere near the top of a hit list. Could just be me, but that's my opinion on it. Well, you know, people um, want to kill Martin Scorsese. That's part of the beauty of The Sopranos is that The Sopranos actually hey, doesn't make light of this situation often, and we were talking about the character Christopher Moltisanti, and... Christopher's father was a mob figure named Dickie Moltisanti, who 
was somehow a distant cousin of both Carmella and Tony Soprano, which makes them distantly related in a sort of weird incestual way. But Dickie was a very, uh, like, mentor figure to Tony in his younger years. Dickie was killed when Christopher was very young, and so Tony felt it important to step into Christopher's life and mentor him the way that, that Dickie had mentored Tony in so many ways. And the problem inherently is that Tony introduced all too willingly Christopher to the mob life when you would think somebody you hear me wants yet? to be... I can hear you, Rob. My back? Okay. I could hear you, you before. I was having some issues getting th- uh, getting my getting it through. So thanks again, Blog Talk. Uh, brief aside, apparently next month or so, in the nearer to immediate future, the Radulich and Broadcasting Network, of which this show is a part, will be moving to a Google Hangout format. And I believe Mark's lovely and talented wife, Melissa Radulich, will be putting will be converting all of these into audio files, putting a template over them and uploading them to YouTube if you can't get to see them live. So just brief reference in the future, a lot of these technical little glitches like that should be out of the... I apologize for interrupting. I believe you were talking about how a lot of mob people should want to kill Martin Scorsese. There was that, and then uh, we kind of segued into the life of Christopher Moltisanti. And if you didn't get to hear, we kind of talked about how Christopher's father was a, a mob associate named Dickie Moltisanti, who was a mentor to Tony in Tony's early formative criminal years. And Dickie died when Christopher was very young, so Tony kind of felt the, the, the need to step in as a mentor figure to Christopher. And right where we got to was the problem is that you would think Tony, in trying to help Christopher and, and do the right thing by his dad, would try to steer him away from such a life. But instead, Tony had him fully embrace the ideas and, and you know, elements of this mob lifestyle, which is, you know, kind of the resulting drive of the entire Christopher character is that he wants to be the man in the mob. He wants to be the captain. He wants to be a boss. This is this is everything to him, so much so to the point that, like we talked about, he gave he gave the love of his life over to the mob when she was going to turn them in. Yeah, that I almost feel bad for him in some instances because he just you get the impression that he's trying so hard to become made. He has all these stupid ideas, some of them good ideas, but the one that kind of sticks out in my mind, and this goes on to a couple of other characters, about his ability to make bad decisions when they do the uh, I believe it's in the second or early or in the, towards the end of the first I can't remember which they set up a scam where they're they set up a call center and they have Christopher fake his. He has he hires someone to take his securities and exchange stockbrokers test for him, and then he oversees a bunch of brokers who are making calls to random old people and trying to get them to invest their fixed income money into the stock portfolio into a, a bogus company I believe called Webistics. And one of the brokers, when Christopher is not in the office, decides to try and offer. He offers someone a different option for investment and the associates of Christopher who are kind of in charge there proceed to beat him fairly badly full in the office there's not even cubicles everybody else in the office sees these two guys beat this poor schmuck and then I mean immediately a bunch of them quit and it's just you know if you're trying to run kind of a white collar scam like that you can't leave low level thugs like those two were in charge without someone with a slightly cooler head around the soon to be late Matthew Bevel Aqua being one of those thugs yeah and those two got what they deserved towards the end of that season. I thought they caused so many problems. I mean, they walked up to Tony at that particular at that uh, union strike when they were supposed to break it up, which they did with much violence. And Tony's not supposed to be there, can't be seen there. And they see him and go, "Hey, there's Tony. Let's go say hi." I mean, you know, you reflect 
you know, the lower level reflects on the upper level, and Christopher's, whenever he was placed over something, it never really went through. It kind of fell apart. And then he was, and of course, the other thing is he's trying to write his life story as a screenplay to sell to Hollywood, and John Favreau promptly steals it from him in one episode. But hey, John Favreau playing a scumbag—that's so much of a stretch. Oh, be, but, be nice to Favreau, but. Yeah, you know, one of the things about Christopher is that he's really been invested heavily into trying to come up with a, a winning screenplay. And, you know, he has such a love of classic movies. And I remember he, when the character of Ralph Cifaretto was so obsessed with the movie Gladiator that Chris is the old school film buff who tells him, no, you, if you want to see a Gladiator movie, you have to see Spartacus with Kirk Douglas. And you can see that's a true love and a passion that Christopher had. And you wonder, had Tony kind of fostered him another way and tried to keep him in school? Would he have seriously pursued, you know, screenwriting, directing, something along those lines? And he eventually does get to delve into that world when they make the, the film Cleaver in uh, season, going from season five to season six. And they have the actual production of the movie started a script together and they get investors. But, but you know, had Christopher been able to channel that passion he had into something legitimate as opposed to his life stream of becoming a made man and a high-ranking mob boss, you know, how things would have changed for him. But this is what we talk about when we talk about a character seemingly making inherently progressively worse decisions. It's a tough cycle to break. You know, we, you talk about the slippery slope as far as decision-making goes, and it's kind of an overused term, especially in courtroom dramas, because lawyers apparently, in the scripted world, lawyers like to throw that line around. But once you start making bad decisions like that, it only seems, it seems like the only way... To keep going forward is to keep making bad decisions. It is unbelievably difficult to break that particular cycle. And, okay, since we've talked a little bit about Christopher, all right, confession time. I have no earthly idea how Tony Soprano wound up as successful as he was because if I had been raised with his, if his mother had raised me, I would have killed her when I was a teenager and I would have spent the rest of my life in juvenile, probably in prison because I would have absolutely no remorse for that particular action. Lord in heaven, she annoyed the piss out of me, and not in a good way. From now on, whenever someone does a top annoying characters from television, she's going to be close to the top of the list for me. I mean, every time someone goes to see her, she goes, why won't the good Lord take me? I wish he'd take me. I keep wanting someone to go, yeah, I wish he'd take you too, and then shoot her in the face. So... Poor Tony Soprano having to grow up under the influence of Livia Soprano, who, oh, borderline personality disorder all over the place there. You hate her, but, but I happen to love Livia Soprano. I, I thought Nancy Marchand rocked playing Livia Soprano. She uh, you know, did a phenomenal job acting, and I will say that. I would not be so annoyed with the character if it was done poorly. It was done correctly. It annoys me on a personal level. I was happy when she died, but... That's no, but you, you can understand why, why you know viewers would feel a, a bit of relief when Livia finally bit the dust. But what a what, you know what a great way to understand why Tony can be so cold and calculating when he was raised in such a, a, a horrible environment. Where on one hand he has a father who loves him and treats him fairly well, but he happens to walk in one day to see that his father cutting off the local butcher's hand, giving him his first panic attack, and. Then you go home and you have a woman who's been described as incapable of having any sense of joy. The only time she ever seemed to smile was either when his father fell down the stairs once and she laughed, and it actually goes a little bit later in life when she's on her last legs and Tony is visiting her and trying to help her at the house and trying to help out Janice after the murder of Richie April and cleaning up the mess when 
she comes downstairs. Tony gets so frustrated and storms out of the house. He trips and mimics his father, and she laughs again. Well, she does seem to smile towards the end of this first season when she, like, fakes a stroke to get away from him after Junior tries to have him killed. Oh, when she's on the gurney and he's talking to her. And he was prepared to smother her with a pillow. He, he was very close, and to see him raving in front of the doctors and orderlies pushing her into the ICU that she's laughing is one of the more memorable scenes from the early episodes of The Sopranos. But her character is really essential to understanding Tony's character in many ways because, again, you, you see this as a guy who kind of craves love that he never got as a child, and he tries to find it in different sources. And, you know, his adolescent daughter, who becomes increasingly colder to him as the first early seasons wear on because she's aware of his life as a criminal, his, you know, so that's a, a broken relationship that he has to eventually try to mend. They're growing rifts between he and his wife. So it goes into the duck theory where he cries when the ducks leave because in many ways, seeing the ducks in his pool and being happy is the family he never had. And when he explains to Dr. Melfi, he had a dream that one day a bird flew away with his penis, that she's trying to explain the concept to him that he sees the birds in a way as a surrogate family when they're in his pool and them flying away with him and making him a eunuch is kind of what he's afraid of happening in real life, that his real family will leave him all to himself because he's love-starved. And that goes back to his mother being a cold, horrible woman. And, you know, sequences where whenever anyone talks poorly about her, I mean, even after she basically condones Junior trying to kill him, he says, you know, a lot of the time he tends to come with, you know, that's my mother, you don't get to talk bad about her. Even when, he sa- even when she's dead to him, his line there, you know, she's dead to me, he doesn't really, he still kind of freaks out when Dr. Melfi suggests that she has a personality disorder, and that's one of the first times he really loses it around her. I mean, he kind of loses his temper at different points, but when that, when she suggests that, he really loses it. He flips her glass table over, he threatens her, he just kind of goes off the deep end for a couple of minutes there. Yeah, and you know what, it's kind of a, I don't mean to go all Freudian, that's usually Radulich's expertise, but, you know, it, 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 it's very much the relationship between a mother and son or a father and daughter where they say, you know, the first the first man a, a girl falls in love with is her dad, the first woman a boy falls in love with and wants the qualities of and a future spouse is his mother. And, you know, it's kind of a son's duty to always be loyal to his mother more than anything and be the protector because he feels that need in case his father isn't around, that that's the role he has to fill. And, and, you know, it's not quite an Oedipus complex, mind you, but very similar because of the role of duty. And especially in a traditional Italian Catholic family, that's very much at play, even despite how horrible this woman may be at the end of the day, the reinforcement of the idea that she's still your mother and, you know, you still need to love her above all else never leaves and then uh, when she finally dies overdue for my money but again that character annoyed so i'm far from objective as far as that goes his reaction to her she actually does have a stroke i mean there's some debate about the first one being maybe psychosomatic but the second one when she actually does die from it the way that's handled i thought was interest dealing with the death of a parent is never an easy thing in general and then when you factor in the tumultuous say to be you know very kind calling it a tumultuous relationship would be about as you know that's probably the kindest thing you can say about it so if you could talk you know how he because you know tony also deals with a lot of death and a lot of it he does but that's one that you say he was ready to kill her and he probably would have but he never got but he never actually did it so Watching him deal with the death of his mother was an interesting kind of view into the character, I thought. Rob, did you cut out again? Uh, 
Okay, Blog Talk is not working with, with Robert tonight, so I'm going to kind of step in here and try to fill in again. But, yeah, watching Tony deal with the death of his mother, who was diagnosed later on as a borderline personality, which is something, again, he takes a lot of offense to when he's told this by his sister Janice. Uh, it, it's really, really just... That's one of those moments where the character becomes very human. And for all the evil shit he does to people over the course of this show, and he does a lot of he does a lot of wrong by a lot of people. This is one of those moments where you can generally feel a sense of empathy for him, because you you understand that this woman was just horrible to him, tortured him throughout his entire life. Yet there was still that feeling of loyalty involved, and, and that it, it's his mother. And despite that, and we talked about you know again the sense of duty for the son to the mother, especially in that type of Catholic, Italian, old-school family from northern New Jersey. It, it, you know, I grew up with a lot of families just like that. was in one myself. Out of my back yet? Uh, but it, that's one of those moments where he's not a mob boss who can all of a sudden make a call and just, you know, have somebody whacked or perform a hostile takeover of a small business. Through This is the moment where he becomes human, and it's one of the real points where he kind of is just helpless and doesn't know how to deal with it. And that's kind of a recurring theme in a lot of ways when he deals with uh, his longtime friend, his, a guy he considers one of his closest friends, and uh, Big Pussy Sal Bontetero, one of the other people who turned state's evidence on him and was going to attempt to be a guy who went into witness protection. When Tony actually has to be the one, along with his other two friends who were in that crew with him, Paulie and Silvio, when, but he has to be the one to make the call to get rid of him, and actually has to commit the act. He's haunted throughout the rest of the series by that act. Because Tony, for all his faults, does have conscience. He's not a complete sociopath, as most people in that life are. And perhaps it's, you know, the involvement of the church in the early going and dealing with Melfi a little bit more, that he understands kind of the weight of his actions a little bit. But, again, this is a guy who... Oh, yeah, what is, is, is it in the... My back? Yes, your back, Rob. Okay. Well, it's in what? I forget which season it's in, but she describes him as having, I forget the disorder, but he has to, his mind and body have to constantly be in motion and stimulated to prevent him from having to deal with the emotional and psychological weight of the, you know, of the horrors that he's committed. Yeah, we, we used to joke that he was, he was going through menopause and needed constant distractions because he would be overcome with emotions because of what he does. Or in the case of oh, his, mo- his mother's death, what he, what he could or couldn't do in that scenario. Yeah, just further proof that by that point, the poor guy could not possibly have gotten out and led a normal life. His body might have turned on him and killed him. And, and it's the life he leads every day. Yeah. All right. We met, we've mentioned this character a couple of times, so I think we should probably discuss... Uncle June and his role throughout the series because plays a very kind of interesting role, especially in the beginning. So, uh, the poor guy with his giant glasses, if we could talk a little bit about him. Yeah, Uncle Junior Corrado Soprano played so well by Dominic Kianese. If he didn't get an Emmy Award, and I look up later if he, if he did or didn't, I'm going to be very upset because he was fantastic, especially in the early seasons when he really was a more featured character. But he was the actual boss of the family when DeMeo, the original boss leader, went to jail. And basically, things get very heated between he and Tony because Tony had been taking on an increasing role. I mean, not DeMeo, I'm sorry. When uh, Jackie Aprile had actually been hospitalized and gone through chemotherapy and eventually passed away, it had been Tony who took on a lot of the responsibilities of Jackie as the boss of the family. And so when Jackie did pass away, there was going to be the inevitable power struggle between Junior, who had been there forever, 
And Tony, his own nephew, he was in many ways a surrogate father too after Tony's father, Johnny, passed away. And as it develops, Tony eventually shows his more manipulative side by agreeing to have Junior installed as the boss of the family, the de facto boss. And Tony just goes ahead and manipulates Junior by playing mind games with him throughout to the point where they're ready. And, and Junior, to his part, is crafty like a fox too in his older age because he's well aware of what's going on. And engages in several assassination plots against Tony only to have them either foiled or called off at the last minute because he sees a better situation to emerge for himself. So in many ways, you can see the relationship there because they think very much alike, and that's part of Corrado mentoring Tony throughout his criminal career. Okay, uh, I am looking up uh, the actor there to see if he's got any awards. It looks like he scored a cut. He got one or two. Two, let me see. I just see one. Oh, wait, there's two. He had two uh, awards that he was part of for being part of a uh, outstanding part of an ensemble, not in uh, uh, Screen Actors Guild Awards for outstanding performance by an ensemble in dramatic series, but he never got an individual. Looks like nomination or win, which is kind of sad because his early stuff, like you said, is really good. Yes, yeah, seasons one and two, he's really a, a great foil for the Tony character in many of the, the episodes, and Kind of as, a, as an overall situation, he's not he's not the direct foil, but in many ways he is. Yeah, he's you know he's not necessarily opposing him. He's not necessarily always trying to have him killed, but they tend to butt heads a fair amount of the time. And, and again, very much alike. Where in the end, both of them are looking for a situation that is going to benefit them in the long haul, one way or the other. And that's ultimately what leads to their decision making process. Yeah, it's it, Tony's life is full of you know they could be called interesting relationships, but. You know, again, one of the things that we I we mentioned a bit earlier that I want to kind of frame this whole series around since we're kind of focusing on towards the end of Breaking Bad. In addition to bad guys being the featured character or you know the protagonist, is you know, good guys who make bad decisions because that's also fairly prevalent. It's a running theme in those types in these types of stories. So I want to talk about a character who appears a fair amount of the time that is actually not mobbed up and his own words. Uh, Tony Soprano's good friend, Artie, whose restaurant he firebombs in the first episode to keep his <laughs> uncle from having a hit carried out there. Oh, Artie Bucco. That's you know, the I, one. I, I know, I, I know you're, you're, you know, we're talking about good guys who, who tend to make bad decisions, but I'm not actually convinced Artie is inherently a good guy. I, I think he's, he's gotten the perception of being a good guy because the bad decisions he seems to, to, be, to be about to make he really winds up finding a way to shoot himself in the foot and screw it up before he even has the chance to really deliver on it, at least from what I, I, I read it at. Uh, and and th there are certain stupid scenarios. One of, one of my favorites is when Artie has a hostess at his, rest his restaurant, the second Vesuvio, after the first was, as you mentioned, firebombed by Tony. He has a hostess there who brings in a, a friend from her country, and they're supposed to buy this, this new liquor that's going to be the new vodka, and they ask Artie for a big investment. And like an idiot, he tries to play mob boss and give out uh, an interest rate, a big, and gives out the money. When he finds out he's going to get stiffed pretty badly, he tries to get physical with the situation, gets beaten up for it, and made to look like an idiot. Well, the poor guy and, is of course, not an imposing character. No, and of course, what does he do? He winds up trying to go to Tony for help, knowing full well who Tony is and what he's about. Yeah, that's that's a theme for the early parts of the first couple of seasons there, is this guy who is not involved in the mob, but 
he's a good friend of Tony's. He they've known each other for you know, pretty much their entire lives, and they can't. His wife really doesn't want him associating with Tony, but he's got to walk this line where he kind of avoids being um, being you know associated with the mob and that he's you know made or around them, but he has to deal with them because they're a fairly high number of his clients. Clientele is mostly mafiosos. Yeah, and that, that never changes no matter how much Artie's wife Charmaine pressures him to do so. And, and at times, Artie will have these moments of clarity where he realizes, you know, I'm not a monster. I, I need to, you know, keep my nose clean out of these situations. But he, I think in so, so many ways, he kind of was jealous of Tony growing up with him and seeing Tony as not only even as a mob boss, but prior to that, Tony was, you know, a, a pretty reputed high school jock at West Orange High School where they went to high school together and got to Seton Hall on an athletic scholarship because of it. And then, you know, delving into his criminal career, Tony was able to, you know, afford this luxurious life and this big house in West Caldwell and have all these things at his disposal, money at the ass gang, any, any woman he so chooses for the most part. And he and does choose a few number of hard. them. Yeah, and Artie has to work hard every day for, you know, it's not, it's not a nine-to-five job running a restaurant, specifically when you're the main chef, too. It's it's an all-day job, everyday job. And Artie has to sacrifice a lot, and he doesn't really get anything close to what Tony gets for it. And I think in many ways he's both jealous and embittered by that. And so he he sees moments where he thinks he has an opportunity to kind of be Tony for a day or be Tony for a scenario. And, of course, they blow up in his face because he's not capable of doing what Tony does. And there are some pretty, uh, there are also some pretty gnarly characters. I mean, one of the themes that kind of goes throughout is, especially kind of the later seasons, you have people who were convicted of crimes associated with you know, being a, you know, being an organized crime, finally getting out of jail. And uh, Steve Buscemi, who, man, he may not look good, but he can act as proven in Boardwalk Empire, for those of you following that. He plays a character who gets out and tries not to immediately go back into a life of organized crime. It doesn't quite work out for the poor guy. No, poor, poor Tony Blundetto, who in many ways was the brother Tony never had as a kid growing up. Both of them being named Tony had the nicknames of Tony Uncle Johnny and Tony Uncle Al from their fathers so they could differentiate the two Tonys. And Tony Soprano has always felt a sense of uh, owing Tony Blundetto because when Tony Blundetto was arrested back in the 80s, it was on a job Tony was supposed to have actually gone along on and prior to it had suffered one of his many panic attacks. And, you know, as a cover-up, he said he was jumped by unidentified black males and, you know, couldn't make it. But Tony went away for, Tony Blundetto went away for over 20 years and Tony Soprano always felt a huge sense of guilt about that. So when Brundetto gets out, he has a plan where he had studied massage therapy in jail and really tried to better himself. And Tony always is trying to do the right thing in his own screwed-up mind by offering him work with his family and offering him money and doing whatever he can. And Tony Blundetto is constantly telling him, no, I want to, you know, I want to do this. I'm done with that. I need to get my life straight. I want to be a good father to my twin boys, you know, this, that, and the other. And the mistake he makes that's critical is he doesn't try to distance himself from Tony. He doesn't try to distance himself from the guys he knew from their crew back in the day. He immediately hangs out with them again and goes to the same restaurants and will hang out at the Bada Bing and doesn't understand that by doing this, he's opening himself up to easily slip back in, much the same way uh, an addict who is, say, an alcoholic 
goes to visit friends and the same people he was hanging out with when he was tossing back 12 beers a night and hangs out in the same place with the same guys, doesn't realize how easy it is to slip right back into that same mold. And eventually, you know, he does that and screws up in a big way. And, again, we see Tony feeling guilt over what happened because he feels like it's his fault even more so this time because... In reality, it is. That's I do have to Tony's say, though, on a in that, slightly... And when he feels he's note. trying to do the right thing, pay back his cousin, he's doing the worst thing possible to his cousin and ends up costing him his life. On a quasi-facetious note. You know, it, because it, it ultimately culminates ah. in Steve Buscemi accepting a job from a rival family in New York that results in the killing of Billy Leotardo, who is the brother of Phil Leotardo, who is one of the higher-ups of the New York-based crime family run by John Sacramone, who had had a good relationship with Tony for a long time, but eventually when John died of cancer and was suffering and Phil took over as the de facto boss of the family, things got very contentious very fast, and ultimately Tony Blundetto killing Billy Leotardo was the impetus for the big feud between the New Jersey and New York families, and Tony, in his own screwed-up mind to make things right, knows that if Phil catches Tony Blundetto, he's going to torture him and make him suffer before he kills him. They have, Tony eventually realizes that his cousin is probably sleeping at their uncle's farm that they used to visit his boys and recently visited not too long ago, finds him and quickly ends his life with a sniper rifle to the side of the head just to spare him the torture. And because of that, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back in the feuds between the New York and New Jersey family. But again, this was a character who nope. had the no idea be to do right but because they didn't have the sense to separate themselves from everything that led to their bad habits in the past, wound up sliding right back into that, going from, you know, trying to open a massage, you know, studio with his boss from a laundromat who he eventually breaks a two-by-four over the head of, uh, to finding drug money and keeping it and spending it, and then eventually doing this job where he murders Billy Leotardo. It, it, it all just is a very... Sad downward spiral uh, for the Steve who played keep... Tony Blundetto character, and it was a gripping arc. But you have to feel bad and empathize for Blundetto, who had it in his heart to try to do right, but ultimately just couldn't break the habits of what he had led back into. And honestly, Tony Soprano is at the fault for a lot of it. We're trying to reinvolve him in that life as his own screwed up sense of morality forced him to. It's almost a shame that he wasn't. Uh, you know, we talked about Artie Bucco being a ah. cool friend of Tony's. In the early stages of the show, one of the other high school friends Tony had is a character named Davey Scatino, who was played by one of my favorites, Robert Patrick, best known as the T-1000 from the Terminator series. Davey is a high school friend of Tony's and Artie's and known him a long time and has a son in school who's friends with Meadow, Tony's daughter, and Artie's daughter. And eventually, and Davey owns a sporting goods store. It's one of the biggest Am I sport, back? sporting goods stores. You are back, and we're getting to Davey oh, Scatino. I'm sorry about this, guys. Blog Talk is really kind of screwing me here, and thanks for being a good it sport is not about you. this, Pat. It is Blog Talk, we are, and that's why we are moving. Thanks for being a good sport about this. I'm glad you know enough to keep going when my when Blog Talk decides to randomly disconnect me. Yeah, that makes you and the three listeners we have, bud. But <laughs> we, we were getting into kind of tone. We kind of wrapped on Tony Blundetto and how Tony's own screwed up sense of, mor- of morality is what led to Blundetto's demise. Almost well, it also rather directly led to him, quote-unquote, euthanizing Christmas. Yeah, once, once he gets to that point, too. And we're talking about how, you know, he had a relationship with Artie from high school. And just to show what a heartless prick Tony can be, on the other hand, where he spared, you know, Steve Buscemi a torturing death at the hands of Phil Leotardo. What he did to his, his high school friend, who he's known for years, who has a friend, who has a son who's in school and good friends with Meadow, 
Davis Catino, who owned a large sporting goods store in northern New Jersey, Ramsey Sports and Outdoor Goods, uh, he, he knew Davey had a gambling problem and wound up inviting Davey into what he calls his executive game, which is their high-stakes poker game regularly to the point where Davey owed hundreds of thousands of dollars to both Tony and Richie Aprile, and Tony wound up taking his son's sports utility vehicle, for, forcing him to turn over ownership of the store in a bust-out, which is a bust-out, for those of you who aren't aware, is a common mob business practice where the owner of an establishment becomes so indebted to the mob that they eventually run all profits from their store into the mob itself until the store is forced to go bankrupt because of overspending and oversaturation. And this is how Tony wound up getting so many plane tickets in terms of business because he used the business as a foil for it where you had these stolen plane tickets and fake plane tickets under business expenses. But Davey, who is a friend of his for years and has, you know, family ties to the community, his wife is friends with Carmela, his son Eric is good friends with Meadow. Tony unmercifully takes him for everything he's worth, forces the guy to leave his family and run out and hide and just, it completely destroys the man's life without such as blinking an eye. Yeah, I, you know, that, and, well, since you brought up Richie Aprile, what that particular guy did, first day out of jail, he decides to hit up a pizza joint that he feels owes him money from his time in, from his time in prison, and same episode, he proceeds to run over the poor guy, paralyze him, just... Beansy Geisa. That whole sequence where he attacks him basically with his car is just nasty. One of the more brutal sequences I've seen on television. They spared no expense at the horror and torture that, you know, just to kind of show what a, what a mean streak Richie has. And, and, and again, this is a show where the protagonist of the show is a ruthless criminal, but at times you find him very appealing and you, you end up rooting for him. They immediately want to drive home to the point that Richie is not a guy you want to root for. And uh, the, the few redeeming qualities that Tony has, like his love for animals and things like that, that's not Richie. Richie is, you know, 180 degrees away from that. Yeah, those two, uh, well, Richie also can't seem to get it through his head that things are different than they used to be because when he meets Tony, Tony insists on meeting in a mall because he's worried about places being bugged because the feds are investigating them at that time. He's very aware of the danger as far as what's going on, and Richie just seems like he couldn't care less. Yeah, and, you know, again, that Tony is a different kind of criminal from these guys. The fact that he was active this whole time and never once had to go do time says a lot about his ingenuity and his, his awareness of the life, whereas these guys who've gotten caught and, you know, have done a significant amount of time, like Richie did, don't understand why they got caught in the first place and think if they do the same thing over again, it's just not going to happen. And, that, you know, again, not to rattle it up, but that goes back to the criminal psyche where there's this sense of entitlement. They're Uriah Fabers. All those guys, the mafia may as well be composed of Team Alpha Male yeah, or MMA fans. Oh, our MMA listeners will get that one. Yeah, let's, let's hope anyway. I think, I, think, I think we're probably the only people who really do have a dislike of Team Alpha Male. But that being said, I, you know, again... Lord, I hope not. <laughs> but... but but again, you know, going back to this, Richie is a different kind of criminal, and the way he operates is very different from Tony, who's much more cerebral, much more tactful. Richie is in your face, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and makes no bones about it to anybody. And what he also doesn't understand is in the time he's gone away, Tony's come up in the world, and he can't have that same relationship with Tony that he had years ago because it, things are different now. He now works for Tony. It's not that they're on the same level. 
their compatriots. I think if I remember correctly, because I haven't seen the early seasons in a while, I, I re-upped season four through six just for, for this show preparing. But I believe in the early years he actually was ranked above Tony because of his, his brother Jackie's standing in the mob. And then that really came as a blow to his ego that someone who was under him is now his boss. Yeah, yeah, he and Jackie had a pretty much the same ranking, and he just kind of assumed that when he got out after his brother passed due to cancer, that he would just kind of inherit everything that had been his, and he'd go on, and he was going to be on equal footing, if not superior to Tony, who is now the boss of everything. He's got Junior up there, who everyone thinks is the boss, and he lets him take the heat, and poor Junior, he has a chance, you know, Junior's old school in that he has a chance to turn in Tony, and after he gets arrested in the first season, which saves his life, ironically enough, because Tony had someone who was going to kill him, and he had, the feds offer him the opportunity, you know, if you admit that Tony Soprano is really running things and you're just a figurehead, you're a fall guy, and we'll cut you a deal, you won't have to do any time, you're an old guy, you got deep roots, blah, 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 typical cop talk when you're trying to get someone to go the way you want them to go, and he just absolutely, it's, maybe he's smart, maybe he's unwilling to rat because that's just how he is, maybe he's just too darn prideful, but he absolutely will not admit that Tony's the one really calling the shot. Yeah, and and Junior, you know, Junior, for for whatever reason, he he has that, old school mentality that's been ingrained into him over the years and years and years that this has been his life and he just there's a lot of things he can do he'll kill somebody he'll turn the you know he'll torture them he'll steal from them but being a rat is about the lowest thing you can be in in the mob and as many guys have done it when you get a guy who's been involved in that life for that long there's not a good chance they're going to do it no matter the enmity and Junior, true to character and true to form, won't do it. And uh, we talked a little bit about his relationship with Tony, those two. They're contentious. I mean, Tony, for some reason, uh, at that particular time, apparently it was viewed as poor form by anyone in the mob to, in the stupidest of things... I think I know, I think I know your... what you're about to bring up, and it's one of my favorite my favorite Junior moments that comes out of it. Yes, please elaborate. If, if you're talking about what I'm talking about, he uh, he eventually finds out through uh, a friend of Carmela's who has a mutual hairdresser. Am I going the right direction that you were going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're on the same page here. Car- Carmela has a friend who goes to the same hairdresser as one of Junior's girlfriends, and as it turns out, Junior has a particular talent at cunnilingus, to use the technical term. Yep. And as, as silly as that is, it's seen as unmanly and un, un- and you know almost being a woman by the members of the mafia that you would perform such an act. And it's to the point where Tony mentions and basically phrases it as, no, Uncle Junior gives head, which is exactly (laughs) how it's seen by these guys, as silly as it may be. And and it is pretty silly, but male ego is not to be underestimated, ladies and gentlemen. And, you know, conversely, Junior finds out that Tony's been seeing a therapist, and it all culminates on the golf course of all places, as, as white-collar an environment as you can find, where they begin trading barbs, where Tony starts off with, does anyone smell fish out here? And, <laughs> and Junior kind of fires back a little bit about spilling out his problems, and Tony eventually just cuts to the chase and says, Uncle Junior, I thought you were a Bacala man. And, and that culminates in a heated argument between the two. 
to the point where they really do think about killing each other over it. And, and of all the things that they've had opportunities for, with all the power struggles within the family, what it's going to come down to is that Tony sees a therapist and Uncle Junior likes to, to perform moral sex. That's the, the ego trip that these guys are on in this particular lifestyle. And it culminates with Junior and his girlfriend. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I love that moment. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Yeah, it, it, you're laughing because you've seen it, and you know, and I love it too. Where Junior confronts his girlfriend who set up this nice, lovely dinner and meal for them, culminating with a lemon meringue pie dessert. And Junior berates her over telling people about his particular skill in that area and ends up smashing her in the face with a lemon meringue pie. <laughs> She's, oh yeah, he's got her against the wall, and she's sitting there. No, don't hit! Please don't hit me! Don't! Hit, I won't do it no, again. No, no, please. Thinking he's gonna, and he you know, wants just to give do her something, but he can't, can't bring himself to physically strike her. So he grabs. He doesn't even hit her very hard with it. I mean, there's. You know, it's forceful, but he very. He pushes it against her face, and then he grinds a little bit, and then walks away and just. Well, yeah, well, well she's yeah, like, oh no, Corrado, with her face just covered with the pie. And it harkens back to, like, the best of, like, the Three Stooges or Bugs Bunny. And you can't help but just bust out laughing because of all the things this ruthless killer could do. He he hits her with a pie. Oh. It's it's almost like you're waiting for Mark Summers to come out and start announcing it. Yep. It, it, it's a great junior moment for him. Uh, I mean, especially in something this dark, for you to get little moments of levity like that is just kind of awesome. All right, since we're you know discussing all of these characters and in many ways kind of the downward spiral of them, we need to talk, I feel, about Tony's kids, Meadow and Anthony Jr., who is referred to as AJ mostly, unless his mother's mad at him, in which case it's Anthony Jr., but your mother always calls you by your full name when she's pissed. It's a parental thing, I think. You know, you, they use your full name, you know you're in trouble. And I want to, we should probably start with Meadow, because she's the older kid at the beginning of the series. She's ready to graduate from high school. She's looking into colleges. She very early on says she wants to go to Berkeley, which is in California, and can't wait to have the entire country between herself and her parents, as most teenagers feel at that age, I think. Winds up staying yes, close to home girls. going to Columbia. But if we, if we could talk about Meadow for a little bit, because like you said, her relationship with her father is awkward because she knows, she's she is aware of his connections to organized crime and everything. Yeah, and, and she's very 50-50 about it throughout the show at various points. Her, her relationship with Tony starts off a little bit contentious, but not more than you would normally see from a teenage girl and her, her middle-aged father. So so it's not really overly, you know, into at that point. It's just your simple, basic, average father-teenage-daughter relationship. Uh, it, things really start to break down, like we mentioned uh, before, talking about the Davies Casino incident, where Tony... Compass, as part of payment for what he's owed, Tony takes an SUV that Davey had bought for his teenage son, Eric, who's a friend and classmate of Meadows, and presents it to Meadow as a gift. And then after three seconds of being inside the car, she realizes it's Eric's car, freaks out and screams at her dad, and knows exactly what happened as far as what went on with you know the car and how ownership came to be hers. And later in that same episode, they're talking about how Eric had gotten into Georgetown and, of course, now can't afford to go because his father has gambled away everything they had. And Eric really, you know, just goes off on Meadow because it's her father's fault. And that's when Meadow really snaps and understands just how ruthless a criminal her father is. And from that point on, things get very heated between the two of them where she constantly makes allusions 
in front of her to be to be put it nicely dim-witted at the time brother who isn't fully understanding of which but her parents are and those needles really drive the point home that she's that she's trying to just infuriate them and a guy with a fuse like tony it's not hard to do it to and it gets to uh, the he, point where she he snaps more than once and it's always profanity laden and usually involves breaking something in his immediate vicinity yeah and, and it gets to the point where she she wants to do anything she can to get away from from tony and this life of crime and they finally end up stopping speaking when at Columbia Meadow gets a boyfriend. This boyfriend is of mixed ancestry where his father is Jewish and his mother's African American. Tony, of course, being, you know, an old school Italian raised in Newark, living through the riots and the time of his life that he was born in, happens to also be a bigot. <coughs> so this really is the Oh, well, hey, why not? I mean, he'll kill somebody. Why not be a racist at the same time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, and it, and it makes sense because, again, you're talking about this guy who lived at this particular time in this part of the country from this background, and it, it makes sense that this character would have this trait of bigotry. And, you know, in, in no uncertain terms, after Noah, Noah, who's the boyfriend in Meadow, watch a movie on the couch in Mr. Soprano's home, they, Meadow goes upstairs to get a CD and grab some clothes, and... Tony, in no uncertain terms, basically, and I think I remember the speech word for word, even though I haven't seen it for a while. You see, I have black businesses, so, and they don't want my son with their daughters, and I don't want their son with my daughter. You understand what I'm talking about? And basically, at that point, it's told F you by Noah, who then told, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So when my daughter comes back downstairs, you're going to tell her how nice it was to meet me, and you're going to get out of here and never come back. And Noah, of course, does not tell that version of the story to Meadow. He tells her exactly what went on, and that leads to Meadow cutting off all contact with her father until after she breaks up with Noah, and that, that's almost a year in around Christmas time. Well, they couldn't have had them stay estranged for the finale when she arrives late to the meeting, and potentially they all get blown up. No, but, but then, you know, there, there is reconciliation when... Uh, she comes back home for a point in time after she'd broken up with Noah and begins dating Jackie April Jr., who, and this initially thrills Tony, of course, because Jackie had been his closest friend. And, you know, he, to his knowledge, Jackie Jr. is a nice kid who's pre-med student at Rutgers and works part-time. And then, of course, he sees, he winds up seeing Jackie in clubs and casinos and figures out that Jackie is not living the straight and narrow life that he had hoped and says he does. And eventually, Jackie winds up, you know, somewhere face down. But Meadow kind of struggles with grief during that time and kind of almost embraces her father at that point when during Jackie's wake and the after party and the funeral, and then they all go back to Jackie's mother's home where Jackie's sister, Meadow, and Jackie's sister's cousin are all talking in the kitchen. And Jackie's sister basically starts alluding to them being in the mob and everything. And Meadow immediately snaps and says, how can you talk like this, especially in front of an outsider? where all of a sudden she becomes Mafia Princess. Yeah, yeah. there's you know, kids growing up, but that does kind of lead us into, you mentioned the dim-witted, kind of bumbling younger brother to Meadow, Anthony Jr., who, that poor kid, you look at the genetic makeup of that character, and you know, there was just no real hope for him, even without being born into a mob family. Very, very much a twin scenario, like Arnold and Danny DeVito, where Meadow got all the brains and turns out to be a great-looking girl, and career-oriented and motivated and successful. And then you got Anthony, who's the leftover crap. Yeah, it's... Uh... You almost feel... You can't help but kind of feel bad for him because so rarely is he actually malicious. He just does stupid stuff because he doesn't know any better. Yeah, that, that, probably the peak of his early years of stupidity is when he, he and some friends broke into their school 
after hours and threw a party at the school pool and trashed the place. And then we're told <laughs> we're told that the, the, the they, their DNA was found at the scene. And meanwhile, all they did was pee, which of course you cannot get DNA from pee. And they of course immediately confessed to doing everything and <laughs> promptly kicked out of school. Which of course came not too terribly long after the incident where Anthony Jr. and a couple of his friends drank the confessional wine before it was blessed and then showed up to gym class rather hungover. Well, not hungover, but a tad drunk and unable to deal, and you know, kids don't have the constitution to deal with that much wine. One of them pukes all over the place, and uh, Tony has a minor diatribe for the principal when they mention that they need to test the poor kid for ADHD, well, just ADD at the time. That's how old this show is, folks. There was It was not attention deficit hyper disorder. It was just ADD. It's a disease, Tony. Would you hit him if he had polio? He probably would. I would have, too. That's another constant line of thought for Tony Soprano is he tends to view with rose-colored glasses the days of yesteryear. And, you know, I tend to agree with him a little on this one. You know, I got smacked a couple of times as a kid. Didn't hurt me any. You know, a little martial, no, a little corporal discipline is not... didn't range over into abuse. You got to... Uh, and granted, this is a little bit of a aside here, but... Yeah, I'm in full agreement with that line of thinking where, you know what, the whole counting to ten thing and timeouts, yeah, that is for idiots who don't actually have kids and don't raise kids and don't know how to raise kids. Well, and it, and don't it, know how it to works with line. young children. It works with really small kids because it does teach them. It you know, doesn't it work when you're 13-year-old. You know, oh, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, no, no, no. Then, you know, you, you need a little, you know, a little bit of physical discipline by the, from the ages of like 10 to 13, give or take, is not gonna. Society will not crumble. In fact, it was stronger when that was fav, was that was when that was looked on favorably. Yeah, th- th- that and those are the ages where the discovery of smartassery and I hate my parents is in full bloom, and develops. And you should try to nip that in the bud kind of early if you can. But yeah, uh, Anthony Jr. is kind of doing. And in fairness to him, as a former altar server. You know, I may have taken a little bit of the sacrament, too, uh, against the, the will of the church at a time or two, because it's just something you did as a stupid Catholic kid, you know, when you had access to that stuff. But, uh, you know, certain other things he did are, are just kind of stupid acting out phases that most kids don't do, but you do hear about it. And so you're kind of understanding that even if he's not the brightest kid, he's still doing very normal things up to this point. Right up until he has a panic attack on the football. Yeah, and right that's... there in that moment, I think that's kind of the pivotal understanding of Tony's relationship with him in the early stage. Yeah, it uh, you know, father-son relationships tend to either be good or bad. There's very little middle ground as a general rule, especially when you're a teenager. And it's and it just never quite clicked for them. And you know, being a teenager is hard enough. Being a teenager with substandard genetic combinations makes it even more difficult. And factor in, hey, your dad's a mob boss, and the poor kid can't even get into an honest-to-goodness fight because the other kids are afraid of what his dad might do. I mean, that just screws you up. I mean, your your social your sense of social hierarchy and order and how things are supposed to go and whatnot just can't develop normally if no one will even hit you when you're being a jackass. Yeah, and people are either afraid of involvement with him because if it screws up, you know, it's going to backfire on them. And- you know, in later years when Anthony is really kind of making an effort, supposedly, to try to better his grades when Carmelo and Tony are separated, and Carmelo then all of a sudden begins kind of the pseudo-relationship with his English teacher, and she's begging him to try to help Anthony along, and what can she do? And then all of a sudden, 
there becomes the, the trade of sex for good grades relationship that develops. And at this time, Carmel is actually putting more work into Anthony's schoolwork than Anthony. And there, there's a line when the, the relationship between her and his English teacher is still good, where the English teacher is talking to one of Anthony's other teachers. And basically he says, you know, the kid worked hard. Did you really have to give him a D plus instead of a C minus? And he says something to the effect of, why should I give Don Corleone Jr. a break? And right there is kind of the principal understanding of people who deal with AJ, where his, the, and that moment and the moment you brought up where the kid wouldn't fight him over the shirt, because they're either writing him off because of who his father is or intimidated of him because of who his father is. It's, you know, it, I can't imagine that is a terribly easy line to walk. I mean, just in general, and then when you factor in all of the emotional baggage, um, running a bit the short emotional baggage time, and, and got... Tony himself saying that he passed along his rotten, depressive gene to him, which he did. You know, there are genetic predispositions to things like that, people. It's not the only factor, and it's not e it's not the only one. It's not even the biggest one, but it is a factor. And okay, we got six minutes and change left here. Uh, I think we got to talk about Tony's sisters. Because uh, Janice or Parvati, especially because she shows up shows up in season two, and she's kind of elite. I, mean, I think of. every I think every family has. If you have brothers and sisters, you probably got one like that. And if you can't think of who it is, then it's you. So I, I do think we need to talk about her a bit. <laughs> that was great. But yeah, uh, Parvati Janice comes back in, into Tony's life, and at, at the point in time we're first introduced to her nobody's really thrilled to see her because the way it's broken down is that Janice only shows up when she needs either money or something or a place to stay for a while and constantly uses and abuses Tony's money and hospitality and her relationship with him as such. Uh, and, and part of it, too, is that Tony has always had kind of a, a bitterness towards Janice because he always felt that his father treated Janice as the favorite child because whenever well, he, he did kind go of. out, well, well, you know, not not as much because you know we find out later that when he would say he was taking Janice out to the amusement park with Uncle Junior, Tony one day decided to spy and follow them and found out that Janice was being used as a cover so that they could meet with other mobsters in, in a in a public place, which you know, like Tony meeting Richie from the Hall. They were all meeting it while taking their kids to the amusement park. And uh, you know, credit but, to Tony for hiding in the trunk of that car. Yeah, clever, clever little guy again. And you don't you don't be as successful in his line of work without a little bit of ingenuity and box cleverness. But yeah, Janice is somebody who has a very checkered past. Uh, always seems to be on in on something that she's looking to make some sort of profit on, be it with money or a cushy life or what, what anything she can benefit from, she tries. And she's always been a source of anger and resentment to Tony. And, you know, her plots initially range from trying to sell her mother's house out from underneath Tony's nose, who actually owns the house, to trying to steal her mother's belongings from the house, particularly a set of vinyl records that have become very valuable, which were given to Livia's housemaid, and, or nursemaid, I should say. And Janice, of course, in retribution, steals the, maid's, the nursemaid's prosthetic leg. Uh, and her, her scheme still getting kicked to, out of. Yeah, she she stole a prosthetic leg to try to get the one up, and eventually this leads Tony into conflict with some Russian gangsters on a lower level, and another source of bitterness for him towards Janice. And she 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 always tries to become the center of attention and pretend that things are very rosy. Probably the peak of this is Livia's funeral, the gathering afterward at Tony's home, where she tries to get everybody to share positive memories of Livia 
and you know, it, it, she's trying to get everybody to say something positive, and what she winds up getting is Christopher going on a heroin-induced uh, rant about no two people being the same and how even with computers you can't prove that. Uh, Carmella basically telling her not to force Anthony Jr. to say anything and wrap it up. Uh, one of Livia's old friends who really doesn't have anything to contribute, and finally Carmella's father, Hugh, goes off about how she was a miserable person and alienated you know, her, her their own daughter from them because of her misery and wanted to spread it to everybody. And Tony's brother-in-law, who is married to his sister Barbara, immediately says, here, here, because he evidently had to go through a lot of the same problem, being, you know, Barbara's husband and Barbara, of course, being Livia's daughter. But Janice always tries to forego this and act as though everything's positive and constantly needs Tony for either money, shelter, or to clean up her messes, as we saw with Richie Aprile, who... She immediately resumed the relationship with when she arrived and he was out of prison. They dated as teenagers, and it culminated with one night where she just got sick of her antics, as most any man would and should, and got violent with her and hit her, and she responded by shooting him several times and killing him. And, of course, it was Tony who had to clean up the mess, and much to his relief, he was actually able to put her on a bus to Seattle and send her away for a while. Now that, that's a sacrifice you're willing to make. I'll clean up this mess and I'll deal with the fallout of you killing a high-ranking mob boss if you get to just go away and never come back. Yeah, and I think as viewers, we were all rooting for that to happen because as much as you talked about your, your hatred for Livia earlier, I could easily transfer that hatred to Janice, who I just did not oh, enjoy I, I on do. screen at all. I dislike her as well. Again, there are people, it seems like there's someone like that, at least one in every family. So, you know, you know who that is, and it kind of strikes a chord with you, and you just kind of want, you know, you're rooting for Tony to just be rid of her. Of course, Janice kind of yeah, contrasts I... with Barbara, who is more than happy to just let Tony handle everything to deal with their mother because she left, and she knew she was leaving and was just happy to be done with it after Livia is in the hospital and Janice is there for her cut of the house or what have you barbara's very happy to just say you know what tony's the one who's been dealing with her with her for all these years he should be just handle this and we'll trust him to take care of everything we should stay out of it and she's more than happy to yes he's my brother and i love him but you know i know he, what he does and i choose to be away from all of that yeah and again this goes back to your initial point about talking about characters who may be in a bad situation or are good people and inherently try to make a right or wrong choice but the character of Barbara, who we don't see a lot of, actually was, you know, is kind of the character who you can look to and say, you know what, it wasn't impossible for Tony or Janice to turn out decent because Barbara, who is the baby of the family, you know, didn't ever get involved with crime or criminal figures like her sister Janice and married, you know, a nice guy named Tom who makes a good, honest living and had some kids and moved not that far away from them, but far enough away where you could keep a safe distance and a, a kind of a what's the word I'm looking for, a buffer zone between that. And they can still get together for Sunday dinner normally. And she's aware of things, but she's not aware to the point that she knows specifics of what's going on. And she's okay with that. And she should be. She knows, she knows her brother's a mob boss, but that's about all she knows. And that, you know, for for legal purposes and for personal purposes, that's where she's comfortable drawing the line. Yeah. All righty. And it seems when you see them come to Sunday dinner, they're, they're talking about either the Jets or something like that. It's it's never about anybody who they know that he knows or anything like that. It's very normal, sociable talk. Yeah. All right. And with the discussion of Tony Soprano's sisters, we're out of time, and I think we've covered everything, unless there's something you want to talk about that we haven't hit on just yet. I, I think we've kind of 
pretty delved pretty well into the psyche of Tony Soprano. The only the only thing we didn't really talk about is that you know the the, the therapy sessions were used kind of to understand Tony's character, and so you were trying to figure out how they were going to wrap with it in the finale. And then of course you find out again, and this is one of the great moments of Tony's character that he's not even really involved with. That Melfi, who sees a psychiatrist of her own, played by director Peter Bogdanovich, is eventually told that oftentimes sociopaths will see a therapist to justify and create excuses to justify their behavior. And when she figures out the whole time that she's been manipulated, you kind of laugh. It's the whole time she thinks she's been doing this tremendous work, and then you realize it was all just another ploy by Tony to manipulate somebody and get away with things without having to worry about conscience taking over. Yeah, it uh, it, it it makes sense. You know, it's nice of them to... You know, it was nice in the you know when things were wrapping up with that show that there were a couple of things that did make sense in the midst of and everyone kind of gets lost in the smash to black with credits rolling and wait what happened but there were some good moments when that was wrapping up that actually did kind of tie up some ends when they were preparing to go off I was grateful for that you know especially in the wake of don't stop believing into nothing so do you have anything you feel like plugging before we wrap up well as as per always Sunday night you can hear myself and Robert along with Mark Radulich and perpetually Jeffrey Harris on the 411 Ground and Pound radio show. I am in the process of finalizing a regular schedule so that I can, again, get back to writing my my MMA love out on 411 for all of you to read and enjoy. Uh, don't know if it's going to be the blueprint. Uh, I'm going to actually have to talk to Larry this week to see if we can open a slot up for me and see what he wants, to, if, if there's anything he has in mind or he has an idea for me, and we can talk about that. And, uh, but yeah, my writing return will be much sooner rather than later. Oh, well, that's good. And how's your comic book podcast coming along? I've decided whether I can get somebody or not. It's got to be done at least once a month. So even if it's a one-man show, I've got to find a way to do it. I would agree. That's one of those things that probably does need to be done. You know, you even if you wind up doing it solo for a little bit, you could probably get rotating guests on at some point, especially on a once-a-month type basis. All right. So, oh, hey. I'm scrolling through the audio clips that Mark has uploaded, and guess what I found? There are several fine young men who I'm sure are going to go far. Ladies and gentlemen, the Ramones. Hey, these minstrels will soothe my jangled mood. I'd just like to say this gig sucks! Hey, up you at Springfield. One, two, three, four! session you can catch locked in the guillotine this week uh, i should if i were following my normal format be reviewing one show and previewing two others i just didn't have the heart to preview the entire main card of jo- of ryan bader versus glover Teixeira. i'm covering that for Neither the site i just i just don't care that much about it so I review Fight Night, Condit versus Campman, and preview UFC 164, Henderson versus Pettis 2, a good show, and previewing what I hope is a good show. Uh, next week, I will be, as far as the guillotine goes, I'll be reviewing probably Fight Night and UFC 164, just to fill up extra space, because, hey, if I can waste a bunch of words talking about fights, then I don't have to fill it with original content, and that's fine by me. As Pat mentioned, every Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern, you can hear us on the 411 Ground and Pound radio show, hosted by Mark Radulich. 
It's a good time most of the time. Uh, we no talk MMA specifically. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Come on, you've got uh, I I Frank did. Mir and Josh. Did, have you seen the pre-fight uh, hype that Barnett and Mir did as far as the UFC countdown show went down? Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's, yeah talking you know, about, I, I'm a Josh Barnett fan, but the stuff yeah, Talking about doing sand in various orifices... You got plenty of it from both of them, I think. I, I, I think that's probably accurate. We were we were a little bit ahead of the curve on Sunday's show with the many references to sand and orifices. Well, you know, it's just kind of par for the course with those two. And then Chad Mendez further cementing that alpha male fighters are douche. That part I didn't get to see, but I wholeheartedly believe. You know, it's just, you know, to be fair, he's going to wreck Clay Guida, I think, because Guida has takedowns and nothing else. But... You know, all that. of them are just such smug jackasses. You kind of, you know, I don't like Clay Guida. I never have liked Clay Guida. Robert, I don't I understand. Araya Faber has won his last fight, and he may not have won a title fight, but but he's a, a legit dude, a, a good dude, a good fighter. Don't and, mock and, and, Jeff Harris. There's no call for that. It's not necessary. Uriah Faber's a great fighter. I acknowledge his skill. I don't like him as a person from everything I've seen of him. My comment about him being a douchebag is purely personal. His fighting skills are admirable, and I think he beats everyone who isn't the champion, either of the champions in this case. Yes, Dominic Cruz is still alive, folks, and Dana White has claimed that if he dies, they will bury him with the belt, and Hennen Burrell will spend the rest of his career as the interim champion while Dominic Cruz waits for the resurrection. All right, so on that rather amusing note, for Pat Mullen, it's his birthday. He'll be returning to writing... Uh, thanks for being on here. I'm fairly sure you'll be back at some point over this week, over the next couple of weeks, to talk about something, or you'll be part of the Google Hangout at the close of Breaking Bad. I'm t- hoping for next week to get Mark Rattle er, to get Mark Radlich back to do The Wire. If not, I'll see if Samer's available to do Dexter. If not that, I have one of the new guys who wants to come on and do The Shield. New guys in the MMA zone, I believe who has said he wants to come on and talk about the Shield. So next week, one of those. I'm hoping for The Wire with Radulich, and we'll get to the others further down the line because we have. To, I feel we have to talk about Dexter and the Shield as in absolutely just great work uh, kind of all around as far as those shows go. Definitely will listen so to all three of those. I hope so. I mean, I'm enjoying this particular series focusing on television, guys. I, am, I eagerly anticipate the one I do after Breaking Bad ends. There's going to be a big Google Hangout for a bunch of us to talk and enjoy and reminisce about the show. And then I want to do, probably that same week, a show dedicated to Breaking Bad. And, you know, if Mark Radulich, uh, he has introduced me a couple of times as the Jesse Pinkman to his Walter White. So would that make you Walter Jr.? Or would you be Badger to my Jesse Pink? I would prefer to be Badger, but I would take Walter Jr. if that's the case. He's a pretty cool character. I've enjoyed him. I mean, there's a lot of odd decisions but when you when you think about how little he knows about what's going on and let's face it if skylar was my mother i'd have anger issues towards her as well uh, i, I always that, prefer to be the man who knows too little as opposed to being the man who knows too much it's a better spot to be in well wouldn't that make you bill murray as opposed to someone from a hitchcock movie and it's in the hole all right so for pat mullen who will be returning to 411 in a writing capacity soon hopefully and we'll have a comic book pot co- comic book podcast if i can enunciate properly in the near future i'll leave you once again with the immortal words of tony montana so say good night to the bad guys